This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. I've got to say, while I was incredibly happy to bring in a new year, it was hard not to be, as we sit at the top of the show, Tim, kind of put on edge by the nonstop and I feel like dark virus headlines that we've been seeing. Over and over again, even yeah. though I think so many Americans are numb to these numbers, um, I think for a lot of us this holiday season, they really hit home. Yeah, I really, there was something, uh, you know, you just, I think being being beyond just tired about the situation, you're right, that we all either know someone and we're really just kind of feeling this personally. I do want to put out there that global coronavirus infections climbed above 85 million after daily cases in the U.S. soared to a record of nearly 300,000 following the New Year holiday. So just some numbers to set the tone. Let's uh, get our daily check on COVID-19. Dr. Zafar Chowdhury, Senior VP and Chief Information Officer at Seattle Children's Hospital joining us on the phone in Seattle. Dr. Chowdhury, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. It does feel like once again, COVID is again out of control. How do you see it? Good afternoon, and thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, I mean, certainly we've seen an uptake in COVID spikes, but uh, certainly in the state of Washington, we have had a good handle on the actions that we've been taking in terms of a healthcare system. Uh, in terms of protecting the public. So uh, I think we're coping well in Washington State with it. I mean, you were so early to uh, the pandemic. The earliest cases were in Washington. Yeah, absolutely. And so it taught us a lot, you know, setting up uh, emergency operations centers, certainly in our healthcare system, and keeping track of this on a daily basis, uh, shutting down elective surgeries has all helped to bring us back on track. So certainly... For pediatrics, we've seen uh, less hospitalization. Where do you think we are now as a country versus where we were back in February, March, April, May? Are we we in a worse place now? I think we've learned a lot, but I think we have a long way to go. I think there's a lot of logistical things that we need to do in terms of vaccine dissemination and tracking people. And, and continuing to follow the steps that we need to do in terms of social distancing, masking, etc. I don't think we're through the worst of it. I think we're at, it's sort of that curve of we're reaching that peak. And at some point we'll see that uh, better situation. But I think we still have more work to do. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. Dr. Chowdhury, um, technology, man, we've seen kind of the healthcare world um, embrace telemedicine and really the use of technology increasingly. I just was kind of kidding with somebody this morning. I have more medical apps on my phone than I've ever had before, and that's what I'm using to check in and do things. Uh, It's really moved forward in a big way. First of all, what I want to ask you is, how could we use technology right now in a better way to get the vaccine out to more people, maybe to help in the distribution of uh, this vaccine? I think there's going to have to be more centralization of how you track the vaccine. I mean, at present, we're still handing out, you know, little pieces of paper to say you've been vaccinated. I think at the state level, there needs to be more coordination in terms of is there going to be a standardized app? Certainly in in our health system, we're trying to track that with our own electronic health record systems. But, you know, that's not a national sort of situation. Why do you think 
we've seen so many hiccups in the last couple of weeks when it comes to vaccine distribution. So many people have so many questions. When am I going to be able to get this vaccine? Right. Who do I even call to get this vaccine? Like so no many clarity. There's no clarity. And I know that varies by state, but, but in general in the United States, why has it been such a bumpy road? I just think it's it's something that we haven't prepared well for, right? I mean, it's it's that logistical nightmare of how do you get everybody vaccinated and the hundreds of millions of people. But we had the time to we... prepare. That's what's frustrating, I think, to a lot of Americans. Yeah, and I think it's not been it's been disjointed, hasn't it? In yeah. terms of every state has had a different strategy and a different plan. And information technology was probably going to be the way to pull all of this together. But then what you don't want is the situation you're describing. You know, I now have to log into 1,500 applications mm -hmm. to find out what, what's happening. And then there's also the equity issue in the country, right? Because not everybody has access to the Internet or a smartphone or a laptop. So how would we cater for those patients that don't have those, those things available? Is there a conversation that you think we need to be having with the Trump administration and the folks in Washington so that we can all of a sudden make this work better and, and work out the logistical and distribution problems that we're not having that we need to? Well, I think my hope is that at the state level, we are having those conversations. Certainly, uh, that would be my hope. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's actually happening in practical terms, I wouldn't be aware of that, but... Uh, I think that's what you need to do is you need to have a standardized approach. And then that approach is then passed down from the government to the various states. Certainly, you know, I'm I'm from the UK originally, and the UK health system has had a top down centralized government approach to how a vaccine would be disseminated. And then different health systems have been told this is what's going to happen. And maybe we need more of that. Dr. Chowdhury, uh, Carol and I were, were talking about children and the vaccine when it comes to children. What is the latest research that you're seeing about when we can expect a definitive answer as to when children can or, or cannot actually get vaccinated? Well, at present, as you know, it's not approved for anybody under 16. Um, certainly people are working on when that will happen. But, you know, I'm in technology, not specifically on the clinical side. So I don't have a current timeline as to when a vaccine will be approved for, for kids. But it is, you know, it's just a reminder that we're still learning. There's still things that we have to learn about uh, the COVID-19 vaccines that are that are out there uh, currently. It's just a reminder that we, we still don't know everything, and especially when it comes to a younger population, which I think everyone would say, you know, it's so key to getting those schools back open. I mean, I wonder how you look at that situation. Um, you know, you obviously focus on technology when it plays into the medical world. Technology has been crucial, certainly, uh, for schooling this time around, but there's nothing like kids being back in classrooms. Yeah, I think kids do need that personal interaction that helps develop them for the future. And certainly even, even at adult level, we're seeing that disjoint between virtual working versus face-to-face -face communication. So I think there's definitely an impact, but there's still lots to learn. And, and you were also assuming that 100% of the population will actually take this vaccine. Well, we don't know. Yeah. Do you think do you think that there's going to be a, a significant? I mean, I'm even hearing this among healthcare workers who are not comfortable, uh, doctors who are not comfortable taking it. How do you see it? What are you hearing among your community? Well, if you if you look at the data for the state of Washington for flu vaccination, only about fifty percent of the people every season take the flu vaccination. 
So mm-hmm. if we were applying that same statistic to COVID, which is an unknown vaccine that people don't necessarily trust, and I don't even think we're going to reach 50 percent. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope we don't see that that type, those numbers. I think the other side of that is that we could see, you know, I think people are more concerned. A lot of people are more concerned about the effects of COVID than they are about the effects of the flu, despite what we heard from the president very, very early on in this pandemic. Um, Dr. Chowdhury, I want to talk a little bit about technology and the way that you've used technology to transform the patient experience at the hospital uh, especially with with kids, because when kids are in the hospital and when anyone's in the hospital, they need to be around people who love them and people who support them. Um, what changes have you had to make to visitation in the hospital and how have you used technology to help bridge some of those divides? So certainly there's been an acceleration to digital transformation throughout healthcare because of the pandemic. We've We've had to restrict the number of visitors by bedside to one parent Mm. and we've deployed iPads at the bedside so that children can talk to their caregivers remotely so there's been a massive influx of we weren't doing a lot of telehealth but we really have spiked in that telehealth space and at the same time we've, we've made sure that the employees not all employees need to come in to work so we've gone from almost zero people working from home to over 4,000 people working from home now. And we've done that on a hyper-converged infrastructure with Nutanix. With what? I'm sorry, say that again? So the technology we've used is Nutanix hyper-converged infrastructure to allow all of this remote working Mm -hmm. and then enable telehealth and telemedicine with, with the hardware at the bedside. So there's iPads available to kids. That's really... Yeah, that's pretty that's pretty significant. Um yeah, it's just, you know, interesting to see how uh, you know, as they say, stress and strain often leads to disruption and we certainly are seeing it playing out uh here. Dr. Zafar Chowdhury, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Senior VP, Chief Information Officer at Seattle Children's Hospital on the phone from Seattle. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, it's a New Year's tradition when we check in with Hindsight Capital, that is the mythical hedge fund, as only John Authors, Senior Editor for Bloomberg Markets and Bloomberg Opinion Columnist can do. John is also author of The Fearful Rise of Markets, among some other books. He joins us on the phone in New York City, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber, with us as well on the phone in Brooklyn. Hindsight Capital, I love this. It's the hedge fund that just gets it right. I just want to park all my money in hindsight capital. I know. How do we get in? Oh, that it were true, Joel. Uh, You brought this this to our our attention. Uh, We love this story. Yeah, it's a it's an annual occurrence of John's and one that, you know, we're just doing a modest adaptation for this forthcoming issue of the magazine. But but John, I wanted to ask you, like, where did you originally get the idea for the conceit? Okay, the original idea was way back in 2008, the, uh, you know, the great crisis year. uh, And I started getting really obnoxious emails come December from people claiming that they'd actually seen this coming and that they were making huge amounts of money. Uh, so I then, um, so a, a lot of which I considered to be, you know, blatant hindsight. So I then just tried, tried with an exercise just with a Bloomberg terminal, seeing how you could have made money in 2008, almost all of which involved, you know, betting short on stuff in 2008. There were, there were very few things that actually made you any significant amount of money. Uh, and uh, yes, people loved it. 
three or four people. I was working for the Financial Times then, but even Financial Times readers were, in several cases, dumb enough to uh, write me letters <laughs> asking for hindsight capital's address. <laughs> Uh, and and complaining them? bitterly that they weren't in the Bloomberg terminal. So <laughs> was I sure these guys were legit? Um, this is one of the few years I haven't had anything like that. I've generally felt the need to spoil the joke by mentioning up top that it was imaginary now that I've grasped that people didn't realise that there was such a thing as a fund that could foresee the future and would make nothing but trades more than double their money every year. So, our so, own, so there we go. You're our own H.G. Wells. I'm thinking War of the Worlds, hindsight, cap, uh, hindsight Capital. Yeah. Well, so, John, we're, we're, let's start in, in Rio, where you decided to base Hindsight yeah. Capital this year. Why Rio? Rio is because the Brazilian rail was by far the weakest currency of the year, and uh, money illusion is a wonderful thing. If you The weaker the currency in which you're investing the better it will appear that you have done. So uh, the dollar actually had quite a poor year. Uh, the dollar flattered quite a lot of uh, returns, but uh, the real dropped by more than 20% against the uh, against the dollar, so you could automatically juice up your returns by more than 20% just by doing that. Um, so a number of, you know, if you, if you invested in the, the FANG stocks, which we're going to come to later, the big internet platform stocks like... Uh, Netflix and Google, you almost exactly doubled your money last year in dollars, and you made something like 140 percent in in reals. And listen, so, first of all, go to Rio. Also, obviously, it's a great <laughs> idea to shelter last year in uh, in Rio. You know, move the office to somewhere above with a view over Ipanema, Ipanema Beach, and uh, yeah. <laughs> not yeah, bad. Totally double all these trades that are going to double or triple your money and uh, and enjoy yourself for a year. Totally it's double. obviously quite a sensible thing to do. Well, speaking of that, lockdown lifestyles. Uh, hindsight was uh, yeah. all in on that one, right? Yes. I, I mean, again, was it that difficult to see if you knew that a pandemic was coming? It, it, you know, it really wasn't. So there are a number of ways to bet on it. One of the, one of the best ones was to invest in the internet retailers, yeah. not just Amazon. There were things like Etsy actually did better than Amazon in percentage terms. Uh, and short the really good one to bet against, because a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, traditional retailers were already in bankruptcy or very weak at the beginning of the year. But you could bet on real estate investment trusts holding retail um, regional malls, the guy, the guys who hold the real estate for these stores once they go bust. Uh, and if you put those two trades together, you shorted um, you shorted retail malls and stashed all your money into internet retailers, you tripled your money, which isn't bad in one year. No, not at all. Um, uh, or the other one that's John... Yes. Yes, carry on. Oh, John, I, I just wanted to ask about, you know, the the other phenomenon, which I, I do feel perhaps a lot of investors did take advantage of, was this hmm. ability to know that, you know, when in crisis, central banks are going to print a lot of money, uh, slash rates, print exactly. money. What was the best way to take exactly. advantage of that? There were well, there were many. Um, I think one of the easiest ones was uh, to bet on a housing market boom based on the the, uh, the cheaper mortgages that would come through. So you uh, bet on lumber futures, which is where a housing you know rebuilding boom will show up first, uh, and you bet against mortgage REITs, which which finance mortgages, which obviously make very little money indeed when rates go down to go down to zilch. And that, again, roughly tripled your money. Or 
you could just go for whatever there is the most duration. Like people would uh, invest in whatever um, was most interest rate sensitive, uh, which means the longest duration possible, the longest into the future possible. So Austria issued three years ago a century bond. You don't get your money back until the year 2117. Uh, and if you put money into that, you lent to Austria, not the strongest government in Europe, uh, and uh, you, you made something like 70%. Wow. Right, right. John. Bad, and you could, sorry, yes. We don't have a ton of time left, and I just wanted to ask, you've been doing this for a dozen yeah. years at this point. Um, yeah. What are the lessons we can glean from, from doing this at the end of every year? Like, what is the big takeaway for readers and listeners? You just, people just the, don't the, know what's going to work? People don't know what's going to work. I think two things. One is uh, when you see what things like what what is possible, you should just bear in mind that uh, these are what these are what would have worked, and often by definition they surprised people. So right. always cover your backside. Never expect to actually do as well mm. as hindsight capital. Uh, <laughs> the other one I would say is that uh, it's not a fair benchmark for anybody. You, we all right. of us have to cover the risk that we might just be wrong the other thing is though we all in all seriousness have to have some confidence in your convictions right. uh, it'll take sometimes it takes a while but if you just really think through the macro logic there's a there's a you know there, there's right. a pandemic coming asia will deal with it better europe won't uh, and central banks will print yeah. as a response most but of these things roughly speaking you could have got Right. You actually didn't need a ton of hindsight this year. Like you could figure it out kind of how this was going to play out. So, so score for this one, but listen, who knows what 2021 will bring, but uh, we're looking forward to what uh, hindsight capital will be up to in the new year. John author, senior uh, editor at Bloomberg markets, Bloomberg opinion columnist, check him out on Twitter at John authors, also at Bloomberg.com. Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg business week on the remote access from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg business week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Once again, shares of Tesla bucking the overall market sell-off. Stock was up as much as 5.5% today on news that Tesla uh, coming close to meeting its 500,000 vehicle deliveries goal for 2020. So let's get to the person who knows all things Tesla and Elon Musk. Bloomberg Technology reporter Dana Hull uh, are uh, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Dana, thanks for your patience as we were dealing with some live breaking uh, news. So Tesla, man, it is up again. Uh, starting off the new year on a strong note. Tell us about the vehicle deliveries goal um, and what it really meant for the company. Sure. So Elon Musk had set a goal of delivering 500,000 cars in 2020. And then when the pandemic hit, people really questioned whether that was doable. Uh, then it seemed like they would they were going to meet it. And on Saturday, Tesla released the numbers. They were just a hair short, like 50 cars. So basically, the market is saying they, they met it. I mean, yeah. you can quibble with whether they really met it or not. But, you know, this is pretty extraordinary for given the pandemic and given the fact that many consumers are kind of holding on to whatever savings they have. And it just sort of bodes well uh, for the new year. It kind of sets them up. Now everyone is wondering what kind of guidance they're going to give for total deliveries in 2021. And we should learn more about that when Tesla reports earnings later this month. Right. So now it's all about the guidance, right, Dan? I mean, what are what are people looking for in terms of numbers, do you think? 
I mean, on the la- on a Q3 earnings call, Elon sort of hedged, but someone said, do you think you could deliver 800000 And Elon hmm. said, well, you're not far off. So people are thinking like at least 750 maybe wow. 800 maybe 850 You know, all of this depends on China um, and, and the Model Y. But you remember, you know, this is also the year that Tesla is building new factories in Berlin and Austin. So they will have more capacity. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that you're seeing some of the bears on Twitter mention is, well, of course they're delivering more cars. Now they have more factories. So, you know, how is it, you know are they really still growing, or is it just that they now have more capacity? But um, you know, it's just been an extraordinary year for the company, and they're heading into twenty twenty one in a very strong position. Yeah, totally. So, what what are your expectations that you know what might be some of the main stories for Tesla? Because I do wonder, Dana, and you know this company you know better than most. I do feel like Elon Musk is someone who can juggle a lot, but you are building you know some massive facilities here in the U.S. or more massive facilities also in Berlin. And at the same time, you've got to make sure that output is kept up. And at the same time, you're facing, you know, greater competition in the Chinese market, which is so important to your future. Like, how do you juggle all of that? So I just wonder what you're thinking might be kind of some of the big themes for Tesla this year. Yeah, I mean, I think the big theme for the year is just sort of scaling operations globally and relying more on the kind of bench of talent that he has at Tesla and other executives. It'll be interesting to see where Elon spends his time. I mean, he told Wall Street Journal right before the holidays that he has moved to Texas, where he's focusing both on the Gigafactory in Austin, but also, you know, SpaceX has huge projects underway in terms of building another rocket called Starship. Um, And so he's going to be spending a lot of his time in Texas uh, you know, I think in terms of products, the next big things for Tesla are the rollout of um, the technology that they call full self-driving that regulators haven't fully approved yet, um, and the Cybertruck. I mean, you know, this Cybertruck is apparently coming later this year, and, and the fanboys are very eager for any details on that. Um, and then, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see what other markets Tesla enters. I mean, you know, obviously China is, is the world's largest auto market, and that's going to be critically important. But, you know, we've heard a lot of noise about Tesla entering India and Israel and potentially South America. And so if you look at the global map, there are a lot of markets where Tesla doesn't have any operations. So how are they going to grow in terms of just entering new countries? Yeah, and I, wa- I wonder too, just about in terms of keeping up this momentum here, because for so many years, Dana, it was just this, it was this uh, supply problem, right? The interest was there, the demand was there, but the supply wasn't necessarily there. So how do they keep growing that? Uh, geog- how do they keep growing these numbers to satisfy investors who have sent the stock higher by what? In, in 2020, 743%, as you note in your article? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty it's pretty Unbelievable. Crazy. I mean, so that's so that's the fundamental question, right? Like for so for years, you know, Musk said that the problem was production. We're in production hell. You know, we're having all these issues. They struggled to ramp up the Model Three. Then they and but then basically they figured it out, and now they've introduced the Model Y. And as far as I can tell, the Model Y, you know, production ramp has been okay. I mean, every you know, there's a lot of stuff on Twitter about. You know, roofs falling off and these panel gaps, and <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't want to hear that when you're getting a car. Not good. But but fundamentally, like it, you know, it's they seem to have gotten the production strained out. So then the question was like, well, what really is the demand for this car? And in a pandemic, are people really going to be buying these cars? And it sounds like the truth is that actually in a pandemic, people are more inclined to buy hmm. buy cars because they're worried about taking public transportation, and. 
you know, I, I just can't hammer enough. Climate change mm-hmm. is so real to so many people now. I mean, the entire West Coast was on fire all summer. And so you have people that are saying, you know, my next car is going to be an electric. And, um, you know, Tesla will con- as Tesla continues to try to drop the price as they, you know, improve their manufacturing and drive down the battery price, the, the car will become more affordable to more people. Um, you know, people always ask me, why don't I drive a Tesla? And the truth is that I don't drive very much because I usually take transportation. But also, right. like, I'm, I've been working from home since March, so I don't, I'm not in the market to buy a new car. But, um, you know, you're seeing more and more people buy Teslas outside of their home state of California. You saw a lot of people take delivery in the last quarters of the year. And then remember, too, that there's this army of retail investors who have gotten grown wealth by investing in the stock, and now they can afford the car, where maybe previously <laughs> wow. they couldn't. that's a good point. Yeah, listen, uh, we as a family, we think the next car, we want it to be an EV or, you know, something that isn't, you know, an alternative vehicle, but I guess EVs are all the only choice. You don't can't do hydrogen cells yet. Not yet. <laughs> that's not there. <laughs> all right, Dana, always um, a great catch up with you. Dana Hall, she's technology reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from San Francisco, and as we mentioned, uh, Tesla shares up about 3.5% as we speak. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, first trading day of 2021. We're just a few minutes away, about uh, 10 minutes away from that closing bell. Uh, time for the drive to the close. And back with us is Aaron Kennan, co-founder and chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management. About $900 million in assets under management. Aaron's on the phone from Stanford, Connecticut. Aaron, happy new year. How are you? Just fine, Carol. Happy New Year to you and to Tim. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're doing well. We're doing okay. I think, like the rest of us, just kind of watching some of those virus headlines, trying to make sense of it and what it means kind of for the next couple of months in terms of everybody getting safe and vaccinated and then kind of our world reopening. How do you see it? How do you factor it in? What kind of visibility do you feel like you really have right now? Well, I think, you know, as we uh, approach today, um, some some new news over the weekend and and some sort of evolving news and COVID vaccine rollout is certainly um, one of them. It's it's of concern. That is the the speed at which we are uh, rolling it out both here and, frankly, around the world. And we have the Georgia runoff, which is another uh, significant variable, which only a few weeks ago seemed to be tilting towards the GOP and now seems to be tilting the other way, which has huge consequences for stimulus and the, the overall balance of power. And um, and I think the third variable that's weighing on markets is, is probably um, been an evolution over the last week or so is this notion that um, the transition of power uh, may may in fact be a bit more rocky between now and inauguration day. So quite disconcerting. Wow. Uh, well, let's talk about Georgia because that's happening tomorrow. If Democrats win, what do markets do? Well, I, I think that different underlying components of the market will do different things, right? So uh, the Fed's going to keep their foot on the gas pedal. So this sort of idea that we see massive fiscal stimulus or that we see a massive infrastructure 
uh, program, Tim, I don't think it necessarily means that we see higher rates. So um, um, with that said, I think there'd be some concern around on the regulatory side of the docket. So you would probably see a different sort of shift in the paradigm around sort of sector rotation. Um, and, uh, and, and frankly, I think we have to also keep an objective eye on what, what does a uh, – a, a, a move in Georgia by the Democrats, a victory by those two uh, in Georgia mean um, the, the Senate will still be very much balanced. They'll just be tipping slightly. And there are some, you know, conservative or moderately conservative Democrats that can still certainly keep things towards the center. Well, that's, you know, I think worth exploring a little bit deeper, um, Aaron, because I think we do need to understand what the outcomes mean, really, when it comes to maybe new legislation or new regulations. I mean, safe to say, at least the first six months, if not longer, of a Biden administration is going to be focused on doing everything and anything to get the labor market back to as close to normal as possible and the economy. Isn't it safe to say that we can make that assumption? I think so, absolutely. And in fact, those are the trends that we've seen over the last few weeks and few months. We've gone from negative growth uh, towards uh, to positive growth. And uh, I think 2020 will probably end up being a, a minus, call it three and a half percent GDP growth year. And if all goes as, as planned, I think most estimates are calling for something like four percent growth. So uh, some things will, of course, be out of the control of Congress, which is, right. you know, will, will another strain of COVID um, prove less efficacious uh, on the vaccine front? Uh, it doesn't seem like that's the case. There was concern this morning that a strain out of South Africa was, in fact, uh, potentially not uh, uh, covered by the, the vaccine. But uh, I've read some expert opinions that that's not, in fact, the case. But uh, we will see many speed bumps along the road here. Yeah. I want to go back to what you said about the time between now and Inauguration Day and uncertainty between now and then. I mean, we are literally 16 days away from that, just over two weeks. What can happen between now and then that's going to spook investors? Well, Tim, I, 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 I hesitate on that because... Um, it, it's only speculation, but it would it would most likely emanate from um, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, right. um, and it would probably uh, not involve the 11 senators, unfortunately, that are uh, not going to vote in a, an affirmative uh, way mm. on on the sixth, uh, or the hundred odd House Republicans who are not going to vote in an affirmative way on the sixth. Um, and I, I, I don't. Do you think that's to... likely? that they vote uh, no on the 6th? Yeah. Oh, well, they've already claimed, they already stated that they would. So I think we have to take them for, the, for their word. But I think the reality is that the outcome is is cooked in the, in the books. When right. you look at the numbers, uh, President, uh, President-elect Biden will be our next president. Um, but it's a sad commentary. I watched all 102 minutes of uh, the telephone mm-hmm. call between the Georgia uh, Secretary of State and the president on uh, Saturday night, and I was, even as an American, but frankly as a Republican, appalled by what I heard um, coming out of uh, the mouth of our commander-in-chief. Just very disheartening. Well, and, you know, just got a few minutes or a few seconds left here, Aaron. I do wonder, you know, more Republicans maybe not coming out and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, we're talking about our democracy and our system that has been in place for, uh, you know, a few hundred years here. And I do wonder what that might be foreshadowing in terms of how the Democrats and Republicans ultimately work on the other side of, uh, you know, in a Biden White House. Are you a little nervous about how that might work or not work? And just got about 40 seconds here. Yeah, I I mean, I'm an idealist in so many ways. And I believe that 
uh, when good intention people come together, they try to find compromise to move the proverbial ball down the field. And I do fear that the water has been poisoned, yeah. and uh, that may be less uh, likely to happen now going forward. But if you look at Biden's history as a senator, uh, dating back uh, many decades, uh, he is someone who wants to work with the other side. Yeah. Right. Hopefully he'll, 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 he'll strive to do that. Yeah, fingers crossed on that. No doubt about it. Um, Aaron, thank you so much. Uh, always thoughtful. Aaron Cannon, co-founder, chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management. About $900 million in assets under management on the phone from Stanford, Connecticut. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.